You're listening to the podcast from Barnabas Fund. Welcome to this week's Barnabas Fund podcast. And I'm joined, first of all, for our In the News section of the podcast by Matthew Martin and Angela Geary. Later on, Matthew and I will be going through the lens again, as we did a few weeks ago, to discuss some of the photographs Matthew's taken on a on a visit to Uganda several years ago. Um, and um, I hope you'll enjoy that. And also, you'll be able to watch that on video. We'll provide a link in, in the, in the programme notes. Um, so let's start with in the news. Angela, the story we're, we're discussing first is from China. That's right, Andrew. And we've got news coming in of China's ever-tightening grip on church life in China. Uh, once again takes a further step forward with new measures for the administration of all religious personnel. And that includes church leaders and pastors in China, and that's for registered churches that we're we're mainly talking about. Unregistered churches are basically outlawed at this point, um, I think it's reasonable to say. So the State Administration for Religious Affairs, SARA, has announced this uh, new uh, swathe of measures. And one of the most uh, troubling about about these is the fact that they're going to institute a database of uh, pastors and church leaders um, and everyone will have to be on that database in order to hold their ministry. D- databases aren't unusual things. I mean, we, we as an organisation have databases and and uh, many, um, uh, many churches will be aware of databases that they have or databases they're on. But in, in, the, in the UK and the EU and around the Western world, we have laws that govern how those databases are used and they're not run by the government. And what's really worrying here is that those and as Angela mentioned earlier, those those churches that are operating illegally underground, if you're not on that base database and registered, this is where you're singled out and then persecuted and potentially sent to some of these re-education camps that we've learnt of in China. Yes, I think uh, it's important to clarify that there's no central control that registers church leaders that I'm aware of anyway in in the West, um, and that's really what's being required here is central government control over church ministry, even down to quite fine detail. And it's quite prescriptive. If we drill down into these um, new measures, we'll find that in order to be registered, um, for example, Article 3 says that the pastor uh, or church leader has to love the motherland, support the leadership of the Communist Party of China, support the socialist system, abide by the constitution, laws, regulations, rules, and practice of the core values of socialism. So nothing about their competence in terms of ministry. It's all about serving the Communist Party's um, ideologies. Um, And this database will include information. Uh, We're not clear exactly what details it will hold about pastors. Um, But another slightly strange requirement is that the churches will be required to reward and punish uh, their pastors and their their leaders and that will be recorded in the database so it's not clear exactly on what grounds these rewards or punishments will be meted out. Now is this another aspect of the sort of digital persecution we've talked about previously Matthew? I was going to say because you can start to see this coming together we've talked about the facial recognition systems the DNA genome mapping and and if all this information is being fed into one database it's a huge amount of data that the Chinese have on Christians within the country and 
data data should be collected responsibly um, and it doesn't appear that that's been done uh, in this situation and then that's how that's data is being used and we can see that there's it's being used for nefarious reasons well it's quite possibly going to be used to further restrict religious freedoms it, it, it seems likely um, on the face of it particularly as as Matthew as you point out there's no reason why they don't link this up to the social credit system um, and if you're not on if, if you drop off of that list, of, of acceptable church ministers, um, that's it. You're not allowed to preach anymore. We'll be reporting on this in, in, in future um, issues of CEN. Please keep an eye on, on our website, barnabasfund.org, to, to get updates on all these stories. Um, we're going to move to Iran now, and a little bit of good news from the sounds of it. A Christian convert um, has ended his hun- hunger strike uh, on the basis that he, he he's going to be released. Yes, we have some good news on Ibrahim Firuzi, and I know a number of our supporters and listeners will be keen to hear how he's doing. This, uh, this Christian man in Iran has suffered enormously. We know he's spent at least eight years either in jail or in exile, which um, is often combined with a jail sentence in Iran. So you're sent um, to an exiled region where you don't have contact with your friends and family and you're not allowed to practice your profession, whatever that might be. Um, And he has been on hunger strike after accusations, further accusations were levied against him um, by intelligence agents while he was in prison. And that's been a pattern for Ibrahim. He's been in prison. He's working through his sentence uh, for these spurious um, sentences and accusations that uh, put him in the light of a political prisoner. But he's really been persecuted for his faith. Um, And as the sentence nears an end, they come up with more, yet more accusations for him. So this was a situation, but he's now ended his hunger strike, which we're grateful for the prayers that have gone up for him um, because we believe that he's heard that his these new accusations will be dropped and he'll soon be released. So we'd urge prayer from our listeners for his swift release now. Absolutely. I'm a very visual person, as um, many of our listeners will know, and you'll know later from the Through the Lens episode. And I see pictures of Abraham. I've, I've sort of over the last couple of years uh, working at Barnabas Fund. And um, when we we very regularly put out prayer requests for Ibrahim, just looking at the picture of this um, and this particular latest news story, which you can find on the Barnabas Fund website, he looks very gaunt and malnourished in the face. And um, we can just give great thanks that he's he's come through this and um, stronger in his faith, I suspect. And uh, just thank you for that faithfulness, really. Absolutely, and he's—I I noticed one one detail in in lovely detail in the story is that he's calling all, all of us Christians to pray, not for my acquittal, but for the great name of God to be glorified, for which I will be in court tomorrow. It's a wonderful story, and another positive story we're going to next um, from Pakistan. Now, uh, Imran Khan, the former um, cricketer who was a fantastic swing bowler, by the way. Um, um, has has been regarded by many in the Christian community as a sign of hope, um, and 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 people have invested a lot of a lot of faith faith in him um, in in recent times. Angela, he seems to be paying that back a little bit. Yes, I th- I think with this story, and it is a tremendously encouraging story. I think the Pakistani Prime Minister you know, is really coming good on some of his promises and and uh, he has appointed, um, or to him rather, has been appointed by the government a special advisor or aide 
um, who is specifically uh, for interreligious affairs and to promote religious tolerance. Um, one of the key aspects that this new aid is working on is the abuse of the blasphemy laws, which um, I know our listeners will be familiar with many uh, false accusations of blasphemy um, against Christians in Pakistan. Um, probably you'll all remember Al-Shabibi, uh, who was released a few years ago. Um, so this new aid's been appointed and already they've got up and running a, a regional network of um, conveners across across the country who are going to promote religious tolerance and deal with, at a local level, blasphemy accusation problems, and also forced marriage and forced conversions. He's pushing back quite hard against that. And one of the statements he's made already is very bold. He has said um, that minorities in Pakistan are not second-class citizens. It's just worth adding, because we, we were talking about this before the, the, the podcast, and I, I sort of said, well, that could be interpreted as, um, well, they are not second-class citizens and, and they shouldn't think they are. Um, and Christians probably don't think they are second-class citizens, but the way that they're treated culturally and religiously within um, Pakistan means that they are and they, they often get the worst of the worst jobs. That's right, Matthew. So to all intents and purposes, they are you know, culturally and in the community viewed as second-class citizens. Um, the derisory term that's, that's used for Christians very often is chura, which means street sweeper. And uh, they're not allowed jobs um, that are better paid, but most Christians are in, in low-paid menial work, uh, like sanitary work and so on. Um, and of course, in classical Islam, the Christians are also considered second class in the sense of dhimmi. So they're seen as tolerable, um, but they're subjected to taxes in order to live in an Islamic state. Um, so you've got these two aspects of, of cultural and religious values in Pakistan that are, that are quite commonly believed that really do place Christians in a second-class second status, uh, as well as other minorities. So for him, for, for um, Ashrafi, the, the new aide, to say this is really quite significant, particularly as he is an Islamic scholar, very well respected, and uh, he is head of the Pakistan Ulema Council. Um, just to clarify that, ulema, or alim in singular, um, really refers to the most authoritative scholars and religious teachers of Islam, and that would include uh, the interpreters of Islamic law, for example. So um, it really can't be overstated how, how important that is. Now, now, we obviously hope that this pronouncement will have an effect in areas like blasphemy. He's, he's also spoken explicitly about the fact that there should be no space in Pakistani society for forceful conversions, underage forceful marriages, which we've seen in recent times. So there is actually some beef, if you like, behind the words, isn't there? Yeah, there seems to be some real substance. The rubber really seems to be hitting the road. And a statement like no space for forceful conversions, again, really bold stance. And uh, we, we welcome it. And uh, it, it's a marvellous answer to prayer, in my view. Um, and we, we hope that it will follow through. He's promising to probe case by case uh, any uh, forced conversions um, through forced marriage 
that uh, he he get, he gets to hear about. And a helpline has been set up for any minority. It's for any citizen, um, but Christian minor- and other minorities are particularly encouraged to let the government know if they're being uh, put in a position where they're being threatened because of their faith, they believe they're being falsely accused of blasphemy or regarding forced marriage um, for underage uh, girls, both Christian and Hindu girls. Looking across the border to India and their anti-conversion laws, it's actually, you can see the positive tact and approach that Pakistan has made opposed to India, which seemed a lot more political and and driven by right-wing Hinduism. And actually, there seems to be more of an approach to equality here. And I pray that as as Pakistan, as this law comes in and, and, and Pakistan becomes more of an equal nation, that people will see the light and perhaps come to Christ on their own terms and, and in a peaceful way, um, and and as such, the, the sort of the more extreme ends of Islam in in Pakistan will will be um, be happy with that, and then there won't be any any political violence that we've seen in the past. Yeah, I mean, it, we've got to hope for a new dawn rather than a false start, haven't we? And 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 actually be praying for for that in the days ahead. So thank you, Angela. Thank you, Matthew. We'll come back uh, in a few moments with um, through the lens. In the meantime, can I ask you to rate and review the the podcast on your podcast provider? Leave a favourable review if you can, if you want to. Um, And this helps people find us. So thank you very much. Welcome back to the Barnabas Fund podcast. And I'm joined by Matthew. We're discussing the photography he's done in 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 refugee camps if regular listeners will remember we've done this before it's a feature called through the lens and it's looking at the persecuted church through the eyes of a photographer now Mar- matthew has a background as a as a photographer and a couple of years ago he went to uganda and took some photographs in a in in several refugee camps one in particular was called camp rhino matthew give us the context that's right, Andrew. Thank you for having me back to do another Through the Lens uh, episode. So it was actually, uh, it would be over three years ago now, so 2017 uh, we went, and Barnabas Fund at the time was supporting hundreds, uh, over 100,000, I think it was 130,000 in yeah. the end, um, Christians who were, they're South Sudanese Christians, they're refugees, they're fleeing the violence in South Sudan across the border into Uganda, and they were coming into um an area of uh, northern Uganda that the government had kindly given to refugees to to, to house them, um, and many of the refugees were given sort of plots of land and 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 um, materials to build their homes. Um, but what what you ended up with was an area of northern Uganda that had, I think, in the end, it was well over two million refugees from South Sudan of different tribes, different ethnicities, cultures, religions, um, and it was sort of a big boiling boiling pot of people. Um, so. Barnabas Fund, we we found that a lot of the refugees weren't getting the nutrition that they needed. They weren't being fed properly by the World Food Programme. Um, and there was a, a, a massive need at the time um, to to feed these this influx of refugees that was coming into northern Uganda. So um, we, ha- we had a sort of a plea from the Church of Uganda to see what Barnabas Fund could do. And, and um, people will remember at the time we, we had a, a project called Project Joseph, and uh, that was basically to to keep alive as many Christians as we could in this refugee camp. Um, so when I uh, when I went to this refugee camp, it was sort of later on in the phase. Um, we'd been feeding Christians for sort of for quite a while at that point, and I got to see some of the work that we were doing, and, and um, it was a real culture shock for me actually because I 
never really been out of Western society. I'd always been on holiday to countries that are sort of very normal um, Western sort of holiday locations. And uh, I went to Africa and um, was suddenly affronted with a, a huge, huge refugee camp with South Sudanese people who had fled with their lives. Many had lost family members, mothers, brothers, sisters, fathers. They'd been shot and killed um, in, in, the, in the conflicts in, in South Sudan. Um, so it was a massive culture shock for me. Um, but from a f- photographic point of view, um, the, the the subjects and the the colours and the light of Africa is just magical. It's just a beautiful, beautiful place uh, to go to to work as a photographer. What what are the sort of ethical considerations when you when you go into a refugee camp? You, to some extent, you've got to remember that actually these are not just public places. These are people's homes. These are people's communities. Is that one of the things you have in mind? Yeah, it's um, again because it was a, a sort of us thrown into the um, to the hot end of things. Um, it was I had to think uh, photographically um, from what I've learned at university of, of how to treat a situation. And you're right, they are people's homes, despite them being refugees. These 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 plots of land that they're given and, and the, the materials to build their homes are still people's houses. And actually, many of the refugees kindly invited me into their homes. Um, one one in particular, one lady who was um, one of the church leaders that we work with, um, they invited us into her home and they gave us a meal of rice and and tomatoes and, and onions, which, considering that the refugees were getting basically a sack of grain and maize, um, and that was their rations, um, to give us a meal like this was just such an honour. And um, it wasn't a huge amount, but I felt so humbled that they would provide someone like me who's come from a very privileged background into their home and uh, and to feed them in such a way but such is their culture in in and, and their christian fellowship um and uh it was such a delight to 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 see them and to to be part of that and um i had to be sensitive of course um every time i took photos of people i tended to ask for permission um as we do um we don't send photographers out to projects but um it's very important that we work with the project partners and make sure that the the uh, the refugees are feeling comfortable with with the position that they're being photographed in absolutely now let's let's um look at the photos I mean, photos tell a story don't they so this this first one describe it to me matthew so this so so when we went to uganda we actually did two different projects we went to look at the refugee camp which is in the northern part of uganda called arua um, this is Camp Rhino, and there's also sort of other refugee camps, um, Bidi Bidi, and uh, a few others that are run by UNHCR, and they still exist. Um, they're still still operating today. But when we we flew into um, Entebbe, uh, which was uh, I think it was built by the British actually, um, and then went from Entebbe to Kampala, um, which is the sort of capital of of uh, Uganda. Um, when we were in Entebbe, we actually did some some smaller projects um, around there as well. We installed some solar panels and some Christian um, Christian schools. And this particular first image that we're looking at um, is a Christian school um, around Kampala, around Lake Victoria. Um, and what it was very much a trial project at the time, and it was to see how we could um, how we could give Christians. Um, 
how we could um, supply them with a solar panel that would would help them with their ministry and their church and um, in in Christians in very difficult situations when a lot of Muslim evangelism was going on dawa um, in the area. Um, so it was to help help these Christian communities. So this church was being used as a school. It was being used as a church. It was being used as a community center. And it's as you can see from the photo, it's just a just a shack um, with reeds as walls. And we installed a solar panel. And the idea was that. Um, the, the 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 pastor could use the uh, the solar panel and um, for worship in the evenings, for Bible studies, and again for schooling when it needed to be done in the evenings. And it just it gave them greater scope as a community and to operate as Christians and also to be a beacon as well within the community that other people in the area would see them and, and perhaps join their church and become aware of them. And um, so yeah, it was a good project and and I understand that they did very well and. Um, it was just a lovely photo. I, the, the, the children were learning, and again, this was a new thing for me. And, and coming from very much a Western environment and seeing Western schools operate, and and just to see the basic nature of school, but then how much the children loved being in that environment and how much they enjoyed going to school, and it was such a such a wonderful treat for them. Um, um, so the the reminder of, um, of 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 that joy being in 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 a school, you know, that's been taken away from children during the lockdown, hasn't it? Recently, and in our country, and and actually, it's so important at a young age that socialization in a in a school environment where there's play and learning, and hugely important to. to to the development of children and it's interrupted by you know um so many events in 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 countries where christians are persecuted absolutely and i'm so pleased as an organization that we we concentrate on schooling um in in one of our project categories um because it's such a it's such an added value to a child's life and it just gives them a chance when when they might not necessarily get one and if you look at the south sydney's um Children in the refugee camps, um, they do not, I mean, the schooling is pretty much non-existent for many of those and it costs huge amounts of money to them relatively, not yeah. to us, but to them, um, to send their children to local Ugandan schools. Um, so many of them don't end up getting education. But yes, yeah, certainly for this school, um, very, very basic and uh, it was such a blessing to those children that they were able to get an education. Now, moving on, we've got a, a picture of a, a young boy with, with goats. I've always had an affinity with goats. As a young boy, I, I was kicked by a goat and found it hilariously funny at the time. And, um, Probably but, hurt. Um, well, not, not at all. I, I seem to re- recall finding it hilarious with my friends. And um, I've loved goats ever since. And um, um, tell, me, tell me a bit more about this picture. So I think it was the first day that we arrived in the refugee camp and we'd driven... Um, We'd driven eight hours from Kampala up to Arua, and it was a long journey. And, and the roads in Uganda, they, they've got some main roads uh, sort of going going up through the middle of the country. But when you get to the refugee camp, it's just a string of mud mud tracks. And we were in a, a sort of a four-by-four thing um, that the Church of Uganda um, had, had, had kindly, um, our project partners that we were working with were, were kindly our transport as well. Um, and we just arrived into the refugee camp, and I was sort of, um, I kind of needed to stretch my legs. Um, so I went off uh, just just walking around the, where where we were parked, and uh, there was this young lad with with uh, a couple of goats. And for the refugees, they they get given this plot of land, and um, it's just to add actually a lot of these refugees they come from backgrounds like engineering and teachers and um, accountants, and and you get given a a plot of land and you're expected to farm and you have no idea. I mean, people just assume that, that all Africans in these situations can, can farm and can rear goats and um, 
be nomadic, etc. But that's not the case. Um, so often um, they get this land, but if they have a little bit of money that they bring with them into the refugee camp, they can buy goats. And this also sort of stemmed a project that um, the, the Barnabas Fund did. We actually began to see the benefit of goats within the refugee camp, that it gave, it gave milk as a, a source of food. It gave, um, it gave sustenance. Uh, it gave offsprings a, a source of income. So we began to actually source uh, refugees with some of these goats in the camps. And I just... The, the, that's partly why I picked this photo to talk about it because the goat project within the camp, this self-sustaining project, has been hugely successful and it meant that Barnabas Fund could sort of withdraw the food aid, which is very costly um, and and also supplemented by the World Food Programme and provide the refugees with a source of income, a source of food and uh, I think the sale of one goat kid is enough to send two children to school so it also provided them with an education as well if they were to do that but this boy he was rearing his goats and um i uh, i just sort of asked if he if i could take his photograph and he said yes and he said please please and he picked up his goat and held this goat and uh, i just thought that was wonderful um it was just great to see and uh, it was almost like his pet and he had another one tied up and they just walked them around and they grazed on all the that, you know, there's nothing in these refugee camps. They have to make the most of land, which is quite barren and um, sort of not very fertile, particularly. And the goats just eat scrub land, and and so this this boy just takes them around the scrubs and they eat that. Yeah. Now we've got a we we move on now to a a, a, a beautiful smiling woman in a in a, I think a choir. I mean, I think that's the yellow t-shirts. Am I right? Yes, absolutely. So the um, when we arrived in the refugee camp, um, it was a Sunday and it was um, it was a church service, and the the refugees had erected with the help of um, UNHCR had erected a, a church in the middle of their sort of settlement of Camp Rhino in Afua One, which was the the area that we were working with at the time, and I was just amazed at the basicness of the, the, how basic the church was: um, mud walls, sticks for roofs, and uh, and tarpaulin, and um, they. It was so popular, the church service within the refugee camp, the Christian camp that we were working with. Um, they, I think they ran about four or five services within sort of the space of half a day um, because it was it was just packed and there was people outside. And um, at one point, this this choir came in of, of, of girls from the um, from the ref, they're refugee girls, um, but they had these brightly coloured T-shirts. And what struck me was how happy they were to 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 be in church and to sing and to worship the Lord, and you know these the, the service went on for well over an hour, and um, you know from the church I guess it come from sometimes you have sort of people looking at their watches when it ticks over past an hour, but you know these these Christians they have absolutely nothing, and they they just felt the Lord's blessing on them, and they were so pleased to worship and to sing and to and to um, to sit and listen to the Word of God, and it was it was uh, it was really great for me to see that. So Matthew, there's a there's a story of a, a a girl Viola that you 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 want to tell us. Yeah, absolutely. So Viola actually um, was one of the girls in the choir, um, and I didn't realise until afterwards actually until I looked back at my photos. But our project partner, um, I asked him if there was a, a girl that um, firstly spoke sort of good English because the, the, one of the points of us going out there was to document the work that we were doing. Um, and, and tell the stories of the people that we were working with, um, but also to to produce um, a 360-degree video, which is sort of like a virtual reality video. And anyone that went to see us at Big Church Day Out um, the following year would have seen it. And it's a, it's also available 
um, on our Facebook channel, I believe our YouTube channel as well somewhere. Um, it's a few years old now, but you essentially put these these virtual reality goggles on, and and you can look around, and you're you're in the camp, and you're you very much you're part of the camp. And the idea was to to put our supporter in the position of the, the Christians that we're supporting. Um, so I asked the project partner, can you can you find um, perhaps one of the Christians who would be willing to give her testimony and. Um, who who spoke good enough English that we could actually record her and, and and make a part of this project, and he he introduced me to a girl called Viola who was she was about seventeen years old. She'd escaped uh, Juba in South Sudan with just just barely her life. She fled um, uh, with people shooting at her and her family. Um, they 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 took very very little with them and they walked for hundreds of miles um, just across South Sudan to get into Uganda and the desperation and she was if you can say this one of the fortunate ones in that she I think most of her family made it and her father was still actually I think in South Sudan at that time um, but yeah she was one of the, the the more fortunate in that she didn't lose any brothers or sisters or, or mother or mother or father um, but her story she despite going through such trauma um, she was such a strong character you could see the the um, the hope in her eyes, that the, the position that she was in, she was in a refugee. She lived in a mud hut. Um, you know, she barely had any food. Yet still, she had hopes, dreams, aspirations of of growing up and being a teacher. She loved church. She was always in the choir singing, and um, it just gave me a lot of strength and hope personally. Seeing this, this this young girl, um, and um, how how much she was um, fed by the word of God and how that helped her. And also just her thankfulness as well. Um, she was she was so grateful for, for, for Barnabas Fund supporters and the food that they'd given her and helped supporting her family and the church that we'd helped support it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very important, these connections that are made. And, and people, are, aren't, people who give to, to the work of Barnabas Fund often aren't aware that there is an appreciation, there is a direct link that you have yeah. with with people in different parts of the world and and we often tell their stories um through video through um our podcasts and through our news stories um it's very important to keep in touch and and know that that your giving is appreciated absolutely um, thank you for joining us for through the lens absolutely thank you andrew so matthew is going to end our podcast with a prayer thank you andrew let's pray Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to reach uh, reach our supporters in the West, but we also pray that this podcast and um, the video may also encourage those that we're working for and serving. Lord, I lift up our Christian brothers and sisters in China, particularly if we heard the news of the database. I particularly pray for those underground churches that are operating illegally and, uh, and Lord, that they're praising you despite all the difficulties um, and confrontations that they're having from the Chinese government. Lord, I also lift up Ibrahim in Iran. Father, I thank you for his faithfulness and uh, I pray that you give him spiritual nourishment. Um, once his, uh, his hunger strike has had effect on him, Lord, I pray that you fill him up uh, with your spiritual word. And Father, I pray for his hearing, his upcoming hearing, um, that you'll be there and you'll, you'll make your presence known to him. Lord, I lift up Pakistan and Imran Khan and his new aide, Hafiz Muhammad Tahir Mehumud Ashari. Lord, I pray that I give you thanks for this this new law that's coming in, and I I give thanks for um, particularly for his aid, who's taken a really strong stance on this. And Lord, finally, I lift up Uganda and the refugees, our Christian brothers and sisters that we've been supporting in Camp Moreno. I pray that you'll be with them, 
you'll draw close to them Lord and that you'll give them encouragement despite their still difficult situation that endures I ask all this in Jesus name Amen You've been listening to the podcast from Barnabas Fund like, subscribe and check out our website at barnabasfund.org